0: Good morning, and welcome to the Donuts and Divorce podcast. Where in the early morning hours, fueled with some strong coffee and donuts. We tackle the hard topics about families going through a separation or divorce. I'm Dorothy O'Neill, your host. I'm a partner and founding member of BOK Law and Mediation Services, located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I practice in the field of family law. I also serve as a neutral mediator in divorce and separation cases and I'm a trained collaborative divorce practitioner, which means I can offer a unique divorce process used to settle cases outside of court, listening to the specific needs of the family. Okay, so hot topic alert. As the title suggests, we are talking all about cheating spouses today. And Often, when you hear about cheating spouses, at least in the legal world, we also use the terms adultery or infidelity. So you're going to hear those terms kind of throughout this episode. But I cannot quantify the amount of times that clients or potential clients uh, talk to me or ask me how will their cheating spouse impact their divorce or custody case? Um, and it's not always, you know, from the end of the spouse who's being cheated upon, sometimes the spouse who has committed the acts of adultery or infidelity are also wondering because they're a little nervous as well as to what might happen in the event that they're called out for their actions. Um, But a lot of times we get the spouse who was cheated upon and they're kind of wondering what that impact is going to look like. And I know that a lot of people have kind of the misconceived notion that proving that the other spouse cheated will make them look more favorable in the divorce or in the eyes of the court or in their custody case. So I get regular questions like, you know, should I get proof of the infidelity? Um, Or if they already have the proof, they say, is this proof enough? Or, you know, if the judge knows about this, will the judge rule in my favor? And of course, the ever-popular answer that lawyers love to give is maybe. I wanted to start this topic by diving a little bit into the legal side of when and how adultery comes into play. And I'm going to start with how it comes into play for your divorce case, and then later talk about how it comes into play for your custody case. Because as you may recall, in Pennsylvania, you will never go to one court appearance and address. Both your custody and divorce action simultaneously. If you go to court, those cases are going to be handled separately and you go down two separate and distinct tracks, so to speak. I also wanted to kind of say that I don't mean to make light of the emotional trauma that can really result from someone who cheats in a marriage. If you know me, you know that I tend to bring humor into almost everything I do, um, but I do understand and I do empathize with how downright traumatizing. This can be to an individual to either be cheated upon or just have their trust completely ripped from their being. So I I do sympathize with people in this situation. I know how hard it is. I know the obstacles that can come with it, especially proceeding with a divorce. Um, So please know that 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 is important to me. And and I definitely address this with all of my clients and I'm there with them. I hold their hands for some of them. Um, You know, I, I feel for them. So again, I'm going to start with talking about how adultery or infidelity can impact your divorce case. And and really, there are two sides of this. There is fault-based divorce, but then there's also no fault divorce. And starting with fault-based divorce, I've talked a little bit about this in the past on previous podcast episodes. But if you're going to pursue a fault-based divorce, there is an actual statute that states that a court can grant a divorce to what they call the innocent and injured spouse where it finds that the other spouse engaged in a specified fault and it actually delineates what those faults are some examples of those faults are willful and malicious desertion um, basically just up and leaving without reasonable cause for a period of one or more years Um, of course adultery or infidelity is is a specified fault Cruel and barbarous treatment of the spouse is a specified fault. Imprisonment, institutionalization. So the statute, again, kind of delineates all of these faults. And you have to pursue a fault-based divorce based on one of those delineated faults. And fault-based divorces, I would say, are very, very uncommon these days. And the reason for that mostly is because they are so costly if you pursue one of them. And it used to be that people would pursue them because Pennsylvania used to have a mandatory two-year waiting period before you could push your divorce case through the courts. So what people would do is they would file a fault-based divorce, and they would have to be scheduled for a hearing immediately to kind of prove the fault. And if the court found that, yes, there was fault, then they would bypass that two-year waiting requirement and just push the divorce case forward. So it was kind of a strategy thing. But several years ago, the court reduced that two-year waiting period to just a one-year waiting period. So pursuing a fault-based divorce case now is even less useful because one year goes very quickly as opposed to having to wait two years. Um, The standard, if you are going to pursue a fault-based divorce, is kind of murky and it's very unclear, um, even to attorneys, but even more so, I'm sure, to our clients, but the standard to prove the fault is clear and convincing evidence of the cheater's, quote, opportunity and inclination, end quote, rather than having actual direct proof. And I know that may blow your minds, but um, you don't need absolute proof to prove the infidelity. It suggests that you have to prove the adultery occurred as of or around the date of separation. So they're not interested in whether... Um, It occurred shortly thereafter the separation, although sometimes if you do prove adultery post-separation, then you might also be able to prove that close relationship or that opportunity and inclination existed while the parties were married. But the courts are not interested in what you do after the, the separation. If you are dating somebody very shortly after your separation and before you are officially divorced... Again, that doesn't matter in the eyes of the court. So let's say, you know, you separated from your spouse in June of 2022 and July, and then in July of 2022, you get a new boyfriend or girlfriend and, you know, somebody might raise an eye about how you met that person so quickly or whatever it may be. If there's no connection to your spouse knowing that person during your marriage, then more than likely the court's not really going to care about it unless your spouse happens to move in with that person after the separation. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit, but basically, you know, to summarize here with the fault divorce is you would have to pursue a specifically titled fault-based divorce. You would have to identify that you're pursuing the fault, which is adultery. You would have to prove that your spouse had the opportunity and inclination. You would have to prove that the person that he or she was cheating with also had that opportunity and inclination, and it has to be established during the marriage or as close to the date of separation as possible, not too much after the separation. So again, fault-based divorce is not really popular, pretty rare. I would say less than, gosh, I, definitely less than 5%. I would venture to say closer to like 2%, maybe even 1% of divorces proceed on fault-based grounds these days. The the more common approach is what we call the no-fault divorce. And that's when we kind of use the equitable distribution factors to divide the assets and debts in a divorce. And it really comes down to being just a financial equation. So basically, we're making a list of all of the assets, all of the debts. We're putting a value to each and every one of them. And then we're figuring out how to distribute them between the spouses. And the court uses the equitable distribution factors in order to, you know, make that distribution scheme. So technically, there are 13 equitable distribution factors and just a few of them. I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, some of them are the length of marriage, the sources of income for each, the age, vocational skills, the general financial situation of each party. But what you will see when you're reviewing these 13 equitable distribution factors is nowhere is it listed that marital misconduct is one of those factors, which means that just because you prove the marital misconduct in court, so just because you prove the infidelity or adultery in court does not mean that that the cheating spouse is going to get any less of the assets. And it also means that you're not going to get an extra bump. In assets. Now, you could argue that the cheating spouse should maybe take on more debt if, let's say, he had a gambling addiction and that caused the debt and that was the marital misconduct, the gambling addiction. So sure, you could argue something like that. You could also argue that the cheating spouse used marital money to purchase gifts or trips or jewelry or something for the alleged we call them paramours in the legal world, but girlfriend, boyfriend, significant other, whomever it may be. So again, this isn't so much focused on the cheating, but rather depleting the marital asset by using that money to move forward with the cheating. Um, But again, not marital misconduct in and of itself is going to get you a leg up in the actual distribution of assets. So it doesn't really impact your divorce case when you're talking about, you know, dividing up these assets, but it can come into play when it comes to spousal support or asking for alimony as part of your divorce case. So moving into your support case and how adultery or infidelity can impact your support case, one of the first things that can impact it is what's called an entitlement defense. So let's say that, um, somebody wants to file for spousal support in Pennsylvania. And just as a a quick reminder in Pennsylvania, um, there are technically three types of spousal supports and they're titled based upon where you are at in the divorce process. So for example, before a divorce complaint has been filed and you are separated from your spouse and you wanted some financial support from your spouse, you would go in and file for spousal support. That's what it's called. However, if there is a divorce complaint filed, Then that spousal support that you are asking for is titled alimony pendente lite. So it's support pending the litigation. There's also another type of spousal support that comes into play after the divorce is finalized and you negotiate whether or not it will occur as part of the divorce process. And that's alimony, but it's meant to be paid after your divorce is already over. So the law is that infidelity can impact spousal support and alimony but not APL, because again, APL is meant to help you pending the litigation. It's meant to put the two of you on close to equal footing so you can get through the divorce litigation. So for example, if you cheated and then you file for spousal support against your ex and a divorce complaint has not been filed, then your spouse may have what's called an entitlement defense. And this means that your spouse can argue that since you cheated and that was the cause of the separation and you haven't filed a divorce complaint to suggest that you want to move forward with the actual divorce, then you are not entitled to spousal support. In other words, you don't get to commit the marital misconduct and then kind of just sit back and collect spousal support without moving the divorce forward. So obviously the quick fix to this is that if your your spouse makes this argument against you as the filing party, the quick fix is that you can simply just file a divorce complaint, which is going to change the title of that spousal support again to alimony pendente lite. And in doing so, there's no longer an entitlement defense available um, because again, it's meant to put you on equal footing to get you through the divorce litigation. But again, if no divorce complaint is filed, Um, Your ex or you, depending on the situation, can argue that the entitlement defense exists if somebody is cheating, and the court may not award spousal support as a result. Um, Again, same idea with the divorce case is that you would need some sort of proof, okay? You're still using the clear and convincing evidence standard. Um, A lot of times, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but a lot of times that includes text messages, sometimes, um, sometimes pictures, sometimes you have a private investigator involved. Um, as proof of the infidelity. Another part to that is sometimes the, the cheating spouse actually moves in with his or her new significant other. So if that occurs, then certainly it's easier to prove to the court that there's an entitlement defense that the infidelity did occur. Again, it gets a little bit gray if there's an argument that, no, I just met this person after separation. But if I, obviously, if this person moved in with a significant other directly from the marital home, then I, suffice it to say, there was probably some infidelity going on. So that is spousal support and the entitlement defense that can come with that. Now let's move to alimony. And again, alimony is the other financial support that can occur after the divorce. We negotiate alimony as part of the divorce, um, but it can be impacted by a cheating spouse. Now, to determine alimony, there are seventeen factors that the court reviews and looks at, and they are very similar to the equitable distribution factors that the court reviews in relation to a divorce and how to divide up a marital estate. What I want to point out to you, though, that with the alimony factors is factor 14 actually does include the marital misconduct of either of the parties during the marriage. And so basically what the court can look at is while it cannot review marital misconduct and consider marital misconduct in dividing up the assets, it can consider marital misconduct, including adultery or infidelity, in determining whether or not alimony is appropriate in a case. So here's the thing, though. It is, I would say, pretty rare that if the spouse who committed adultery is the higher wage earner, so basically they would be the one who would be paying alimony, it's pretty rare that proving alimony really matters in that situation. Often it's actually used to be a bar to alimony, so to limit or restrict alimony. So basically, if the spouse who committed adultery now wants alimony, that's usually where we see an argument as to um, why the marital misconduct should be applied to limit or restrict an alimony award. And certainly, if a spouse is receiving alimony um, if that spouse then again cohabitates with a person of the opposite sex or remarries or passes away, um, the statute says that that would cease alimony. It would stop it. Um, so even if you were entitled to receive alimony at a thousand dollars a month for six years, let's say in two years you decide to move in with your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend then the minute you move in with your girlfriend or boyfriend, that means you're cohabitating with that person so your alimony would stop. And I've certainly done cases where we go into court to terminate an alimony award because of the suspicion and then proving that a cohabitation existed. So in summary, adultery or infidelity could impact your chances of receiving spousal support or alimony in a divorce case, even though, again, it may not impact how your assets are actually divided. And again, keep in mind that marital misconduct is just one of the factors in a divorce case and in an alimony case. So just because there is infidelity or adultery going on, that is not a guarantee of a particular outcome, meaning that's not a guarantee that there's going to be a limitation or a restriction on um, alimony. It's just one factor. So moving on now to how infidelity or adultery can impact your custody case. So. This is a toughie because I know, I hear it all the time, clients come in and they're like, I know my ex is now seeing this person and whether it was during the marriage, whether it was after the marriage, they want to dig up some dirt on this new significant other, right? And again, unfortunately, I tend to have to be the bearer of bad news, but there's no real legal impact of cheating during the marriage on your custody case. Unless the person that your spouse is cheating with or is now dating is being brought around the kids and is involved in kind of like questionable behavior, like criminal behavior, drugs, significant alcohol, um, constantly degrades the other parent, abusive to the kids, whatever it may be, but the cheating in and of itself has no impact. It's more looking at who this person is and what is their impact on the children, Um, And it usually has to be pretty severe. When I say questionable behavior, uh, I'm not talking that the person, you know, maybe drinks every time that the kids see him or her. Now, if that person is completely intoxicated and is stumbling all over the place and the children are scared or confused or something like that, maybe a different story. But it usually has to be fairly severe. So that's it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to with custody cases is not really a legal impact unless it's pretty severe. And again, we're focusing on what that person is actually doing in front of the children. So if you do still feel the need to prove adultery or infidelity in your case, then the next question I often get is, well, how do you prove it? What should I be looking for? What should I be doing? And I kind of mentioned it earlier, but A private investigator is a good option. Um, if you need to get information because you don't really have any information, maybe you have some suspicions, you know, a private investigator can follow a person. Um, I've had private investigators in some of my cases where they went so far as to go to a bar and strike up a conversation with the person in question and, and get some information that way. Um, they often are able to monitor a household. For instance, I had a case where we were terminating alimony based upon cohabitation, and I had a private investigator sit outside of this person in question's apartment and monitor who went in and out, and ultimately was able to show that somebody was spending the night regularly there. You can also use Facebook or social media posts to prove the adultery or infidelity, obviously text messages. Call logs. Sometimes you have to subpoena those, but you can contact um, your service provider and see if you can get some call logs. Bank records. A lot of people miss that. But, you know, if you review your, your bank statements and find odd purchases or trips or transfers of, of money to another account, even or large cash withdrawals that are kind of out of the ordinary, um, that could be used as proof in court. So there are a number of ways to kind of prove to the court that this infidelity is going on. It's just a matter of, is it necessary? Do you want to go down that pretty emotional rabbit hole of finding this information out if you're just going to be disappointed that the court may not even use it? So really important for you to talk to your attorney about the infidelity and how it might impact your personal case. Because again, certainly there are so many emotions wrapped up in something like this. And it can be pretty volatile and traumatizing to a person, but then also to the progress of a case if you kind of go down that road. I'm not saying not to do it, and I've I've certainly done it on cases and it's worked out, um, but really have an in-depth conversation with your attorney about it. So that's all I have today on Cheater Cheater, Marriage Defeater. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Donuts and Divorce podcast. If you have a question or comment, Please feel free to email me your feedback at doneal at boklawfirm.com. I do make every attempt to read everything, but I can't necessarily respond directly to you. I may use your questions and comments as inspiration for new shows. Remember that the Donuts and Divorce podcast is intended as a general reference and is considered general advertising. Any listener should check for changes in any applicable laws and should consult with an attorney on any legal issue. No attorney Client relationship is formed by listening or participating in this podcast. The information provided does not constitute legal advice, and any thoughts or commentary by the podcasting lawyers is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or legal advice. Any information provided is on an as-is basis and the lawyer and law firm make no warranties and disclaims all liabilities for damages resulting from its use. Nothing provided in the podcast should be considered a substitute for advice of competent legal counsel. And in the event the podcast receives emails about the subject matter, no attorney-client relationship is created via that email communication. Thank you.